Hello and welcome back to Books and Badgers. We are your Redwall Read Along podcast. My name is Colin and with me as always is Trevor. Hey, how you doing, Trev? I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. Uh, this is our third episode. It's our last spoiler discussion of Redwall before our book review episode. So uh, if you've missed episode one and two, we cover um, part one, the wall, part two, the quest. And now we're jumping into part three, the warrior. Uh, how are you feeling about this part three, Trev? You know, part three, I feel like is just a full on sprint to the end. Um, yeah. I've always long felt that basically the last hundred pages or so of a book to me is always where I feel the pace just really like feels good it just like works really hard and in the the case of redwall book three the warrior is like only about 65 or 70 pages long so a lot happens very very quickly there's like a, yeah. a real economy of action here where every single chapter is just momentous with stuff that happens yeah, you're totally totally right. It feels like it's 30 pages uh, instead of the 60 or 70 that it really is. And because this is the shortest part, it won't really be the shortest episode because, as you mentioned, there's just a lot that happens in this last bit of Redwall. So uh, we've got a ton of things to talk about. I'm very excited to talk about how this first adventure ends up. But before we get to that, of course, I got to ask what you've been reading. Uh, anything, anything fun for you, Trev? I have been reading The Night House Keeper by Laura Senf. This is a sequel to her novel, The Clackety. And it gives off major Coraline vibes. Um, if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman and you're a fan of Coraline, I highly recommend The Clackety. And The Night House Keeper is coming out in October. And I think it is just as good as the Clackety is. These two books are just jam-packed with all kinds of very sweet adventure. There's a little bit of horror. There is a lot of folklore. And I honestly think that Laura Senf beats Gaiman for me in some of her world building and some of her voice. She just is an immaculate uh, craftsperson when it comes to, you know, creating a really compelling middle grade novel. Yeah, it's really cool. And that's pretty high praise, especially kind of being compared to, to Neil Gaiman. As you know, I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. So uh, you might get me with this one. I, I'll, I'll probably check this out because I definitely love that. That's the style that he has. And I'm sure. Uh, there's a lot of uh, parallels with with her work. You would love it. Uh, absolutely. The the Clackety is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. And knowing you and knowing your love for Gaiman, I really compel you to go pick this book up. Yeah, man, it sounds it sounds good. Uh, anything else that you've been reading? That's really been at the forefront of everything I've been reading. I really haven't had a ton of time with school sure. starting <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of like i really want to focus on one project and make sure that i give that my full attention so the night yeah. housekeeper has been what i've been reading all week 
Yeah, that's cool. I, I understand. It's it's the the busy season for you for sure. Uh, well, I've been reading How to Watch Football by Tifo. Uh, <laughs> this is a book that I, I stumbled across on Amazon, and uh, I just had to get it. I thought it was kind of like a joke book, but this is this book. Uh, if you're if you're an American like me and you don't really know about European football or or soccer as we call it, um, this book is really kind of a hands-on manual for identifying um, strategy on the pitch or on the field and being able to better understand the breakdown of, of um, uh, uh, player roles. And um, it's just really cool. It's kind of like a, an armchair strategist guide to, to football. I'm really enjoying it a lot. Um, and then along with that, I've also been reading Moss Flower. So <laughs> since we're wrapping up this, uh, this Redwall discussion, um, I've kind of been gearing up for the next book and, um, I am very excited about it. I, I'm, I love Redwall and I'm, I'm glad to be getting towards our, our big, um, review episode. Uh, but I gotta be honest, I'm getting really excited about talking about Mossflower, dude. It's, it's getting exciting. <laughs> I'm going to save my thoughts on Mossflower for when we talk about Mossflower, but yeah. I'm with you. Like I'm absolutely very excited to talk about it when we get to it yeah for sure but we can't get to it yet because we have to cover book three the warrior what do you say we jump into it i say let's go So book three, The Warrior, starts with Clooney's attack continuing throughout the day and into the night. Jess, with the help of Sam, comes up with a method to dissuade the battering ram that Clooney has bought, or not bought, but brought to the wall. So even while Clooney's tunnelers work, the red wall defenders drop hornets on the rats wielding the battering ram, then soak the ram in vegetable oil to make it too slick to handle. The plot costs Clooney's horde dearly, and they retreat from invasion. While Clooney allows some of his vermin to lick their wounds, he promotes Cheese Thief and takes his leave of the battlefield. Constance works up a plan to murder Clooney once and for all, and crafts for herself an enormous siege crossbow. When she mistakes Cl Cheese Thief for Clooney, she manages to brutally murder the would-be second-in-command. Brutally murder, I think, is an understatement for what happens to poor Cheese Thief. <laughs> uh, we jump right into the action in this chapter one of book three. Um, if you remember from book two, we kind of end off with this siege kind of starting out. And now we're getting a lot more hands on into that. Um, this is very clearly uh, a gruesome battle. The fact that they drop bees on the Clooney's attackers and um, I, I thought at first it was hot oil, but I think it's just oil that they drop on yeah, them. Just um, vegetable oil. Yeah, vegetable oil. Yeah. But the absolute chaos that they caused through this and then the siege bow being created, it's very clear that this is like a war. <laughs> this is not just we're, we're trying to defend our home. Like even Constance is trying to be very tactical. Uh, 
uh, tactful in attacking who she thinks is Clooney. Yeah, I love the ingenuity that the Redwall defenders show because the the problem, of course, is this battering ram, which is just hammering down the gates and they don't really know how to stop it. And it's it's Silent Sam who really comes up with the plan to like grease it so that they can't get a good handle on it. But the wasps are um, just a, a stroke of genius and awful because we are told right. that these uh, these insects, you know, kill a whole bunch of Clooney's uh, horde. They're just stung to death. Yeah, you're totally right. And um, I like that you bring up how Sam and Jess are the kind of ones that come up with this plan and they have this empty barrel and they're not really sure what to do with it. And that's when they decide to uh, put the hornet's nest or, or wasp nest inside there and then drop it or kind of deploy it. Um, yeah, it's it's cool to see how clever they are. I will say that it's kind of weird this chapter being a little tongue in cheek with um, Sam wanting to, you know, drop the, the mayhem that's caused with this. But then the reality that there's a lot of Clooney's horde that were killed in this uh <laughs> yeah jake's I, I guess does a good job of kind of balancing those two but uh it's a horrifying uh battle that's going on i think too the the horror of this particular moment is heightened by the use of a ballista because uh constance you know kind of crafts this this ballista with the help of a beaver which i think is the only beaver in the entire series um, and I, I don't think even right. think the beaver has a name. Yeah, I, I, I hardly remember that. But uh, she she creates this ballista and then uses it to launch, you know, a ballista arrow through Cheese Thief and just like skewer him monstrously uh, to the ground. And so there there is kind of an element of humor, but I feel like it's also just very clearly centered on this this like horrifying act of violence um that shocks me i i think there are some deaths in this book that shock me and this was one that i felt like it's cool don't get me wrong right uh but the the level of violence really shook me for what is ostensibly a children's novel definitely i think it's good to also mention the reason why that she uh, kills cheese thief is that he takes up uh, Clooney's armor and, and mantle in the tent. So she just sees uh, Clooney's silhouette thinking that it is him. And from, <laughs> from cheese thief's perspective, he's like gearing up for like a coup essentially. Like he wants yeah. to take over. Um, he's been climbing the ranks. You know, we, we saw how he was able to, to get where he was uh, climbing the ranks. And then he gets this, this position where he thinks that he can kind of take over Clooney's mantle and gets up on his, uh, chair and puts his feet back in his armor and this this is the consequences for that uh, I guess we should have seen this coming though because as we know lieutenants in Clooney's army don't really last that long <laughs> they really don't uh, this is just another example of the whole notion that aspiring to evil always right always gets you uh, on the wrong end of a sword or the wrong end of, of an arrow, or in this case, the wrong end of a ballista. That's a great point. Really good point. So in chapter two, 
Matthias manages to survive the cat's mouth that he fell into in book two and discovers that the cat is named Squire Julian Gingivere, who resides in the barn out in Mossflower. Gingivere reveals that Captain Snow is no longer in residence in the barn after a quarrel between them. Matthias is escorted to Snow's residence where the owl attempts to eat Matthias. The mouse proves too canny, however, and Matthias presses Snow for information about the whereabouts of Asmodeus. Snow tells Matthias that the snake lives in the old sandstone quarry, but warns Matthias that he has no chance of living. Matthias makes a bet to Snow that he'll kill the adder, and in return, Snow must abstain from ever again eating a mouse or shrew, and he must apologize to Gingivere. Snow agrees to the terms, and Matthias turns to the shrews for help navigating the quarry. The shrews are conflicted about helping Matthias, but ultimately decide they cannot assist since the quarry is outside their territory. Matthias is disappointed and disrupts their shrew union brawl by stealing their speaking stone and hurling it into the forest. Matthias is having nothing to do with the shrews and Gingivere in this episode. Uh, I was just shocked as to how quickly Matthias goes through this kind of swagger with Gingivere where he's saying like, oh yeah, I'll take care of the adder. Don't worry about it. Like, I'm not going to listen to you. But then turns to the shrews and is like, if you're not going to help me go, you know, spend your time trying to find this seeking stone that's now in a bush and he kind of storms off like he is at his wits with some of these other characters uh he's just got a swagger about him in this episode i think what i really like is that again we kind of see that matthias is really a mouse of action and you know really doesn't believe in just like not doing something when something is to be done And I think this speaks to the heroic spirit that Jake's tries to give most of his animals because his whole point, the whole point of Matthias becoming the warrior, I mean, you can interpret it as if it's just like a, a chosen one kind of narrative. But I think really what he's trying to show is that anyone is capable of being a hero, but that real heroism requires you to act when you are called to act. And so he gets really fed up with the shrews because it's clear that there is a solution to their collective problem, which is to confront Asmodeus. But nobody wants to take on that action because the threat of personal harm is too great. And so Matthias kind of lives by this selfless, heroic code where you really just have to go out and confront the thing in order to overcome it. Because if you never confront it out of fear for personal safety, you you know, you'll never do not only yourself any good, but you'll never do your community any good either. Yeah. I think, I think his response, uh, goes, 
I think that you're totally right in in your anal- analysis of Matthias and how he interacts with the shrews. And if they're not going to take action, he's also not going to play by their games. Like he's not going to um, he's not going to be in within their quarreling because that doesn't lead to any action. He's also not going to live by fear, which is kind of what Gingerveer is doing. He he because he knows that action needs to be taken. I think that his responses make a lot of sense in, in terms of his hero hero journey um but i just couldn't help but feel like he he is uh he's very confident in this chapter like he knows what needs to do what needs to happen and he's very confident in in what steps need to happen going forward and he's kind of saying if you're not going to be with me then get out of my way and, and storms off to to go face the adder yeah again i think he proves to be a really great leader here and and we we've seen a lot of this from Matthias throughout the book where he is willing to step up. But I think this is just another moment when he kind of identifies that it's it's not enough, you know, just to be willing to take action. You know, sometimes you have to lead the charge, like sometimes you have to be the one to put your your foot forward. And that's leadership. Right. Um, and right. he he can he's conflicted with with like Logalog, of course, who's supposedly the leader of the Gausum and yet is totally ineffectual because he won't make a decision outside of this kind of bureaucratic, democratic, um, you know, collection of shrews. Yeah. And Matthias kind of calls him out too. Cause he's like, Hey, you guys didn't even warn me that there was a cat in the barn that uh, Gingerveer was in the barn. And he kind of puts the responsible on them. Like you were too busy quarreling among yourselves to actually give me a heads up that this was happening. Um, and I think that he's, I, I think that they, they take that to heart and we can kind of see that in the, in the uh, subsequent chapters. But yeah, he kind of calls them out too. Like you guys aren't really doing what you need to do and you're not really helping me either. So <laughs> yeah, they're very ineffectual, uh, which I think is, is just great when it's punctuated by him taking a rock and just throwing it in the woods. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely uh, a little commentary on democracy, huh? Yeah. Meanwhile, Back in chapter three, Clooney returns to find Cheese Thief dead in his tent, but he plays off the assassination attempt as just another part of his brilliant plan and Cheese Thief's comeuppance. As the fight resumes, Clooney's horde reports that they've captured a family of dormice who are outside the, the abbey walls. Clooney schemes to use the dormice as hostages by which they might yet gain entry to the Abbey in the event his other schemes fail. The Redwall creatures put their faith in Matthias wherever he has gone. This is um, this is another instance of just how ruthless Clooney is. Like his absolute lack of remorse for what happened to Cheese Thief and um, him using this as an opportunity to kind of play off his... Uh, or, or play up his intelligence and cunning in, in this accident that's happened. And then just go and grab the, uh, uh, the Dormice family. I forgot the, their name is, are they just Dormice or uh, I think, that, I think it's just Dormice. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Um, but yeah, he goes and he grabs them and, and uh, uh, it's already starting to scheme for, for what's to come next. It's, it's brutal. It's just brutal that 
that Clooney is is how he is, I suppose. Um, you have something uh, that is very special about this chapter for you, though, don't you? In what capacity? The thumbnail art for this chapter is... Oh, gosh, yes. I'm glad you brought that up because in... In in my original edition, um, which is not an original edition, it was the 10th anniversary edition of this book. There right. were none of the illustrations. So I had not ever read the book with the little chapter illustrations that were done. And so I repurchased a copy and found my favorite piece of art in this book, which is uh, a skewered cheese thief. It's a silhouette of cheese thief. Yeah, just his silhouette to the ground by this ballista, and his body is in like a he's like mangled and uh, he's in like rigor mortis. Like it is so gruesome. <laughs> there's no vi- you know there's no blood or gore that's shown in this, but you get a very good interpretation of what happened to cheese thief through this um, this chapter art thumbnail art, whatever we want to call it. I don't know what the right term of it is, but uh, it's gruesome. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely twisted. It's the most metal art in here outside of <laughs> the picture of Asmodeus that comes in a later chapter. Yeah, man. If I was ever to make a band t-shirt, I would have that Asmodeus uh, you know, art on there. I almost am tempted now to go ahead and make a custom dead cheese thief (laughs) t-shirt i feel like that would be great i love it yeah that's awesome so in chapter four logalog informs matthias that the shrews intend to accompany him to asmodeus's lair he apologizes for the way the gaussim act reliant on their democratic nature matthias accepts logalog's help and they begin searching for Asmodeus near the river. Gaussim has a run-in with the adder, which leads to the death of a shrew named Mingo. I only include that detail because I really think Mingo is a great name for a shrew. Logalog and Gaussim realize that Asmodeus has likely returned to his lair after a hunt, and they cross the river into the old sandstone quarry likely used for the construction of Redwall. The trio search for passage to Asmodeus's lair, and it is Gaussim who accidentally discovers the camouflaged entrance when she falls into it. There's a lot of things that I, I like about this chapter, including Logalog and the Shrews catching up with Matthias and making amends with them. I think that this is a, a great detail by Jake's in the kind of development of um, Matthias's hero journey and how the shrews come along with him and they kind of see the error in their ways to be able to support him uh i i think you can argue that this is kind of a meandering chapter towards the end of this book but i think it's so important in the development of the shrews and how they're relating to the situation and how they kind of step up to be uh be brave supporters of matthias and his quest i i this this chapter is uh, honestly really cool even though it is kind of slow um i guess we get the the mingo death just in the middle of it where I, they're yeah. like oh my gosh uh, he just got like you know he's all puffed up and 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 dead which is never great but 
Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on this? You know, I think that this is a pretty solid chapter. I do really enjoy it. I think what it shows me is that Matthias really has come into his role as leader. Even though Matthias believes that he needs the sword in order to do the things that he need, he feels he needs to do for the Abbey, it's clear that he's already become so charismatic that other people are starting to follow him. And Logalog and Gausum are the ones who really truly believe that he is capable of beating Asmodeus, which no one has advised him he's capable of doing. So literally everyone has said that he's not even his beloved friend, uh, Basil. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think is so compelling about this moment in Matthias's journey. You know, there's this idea with like Arthurian legend that only certain people may be worthy of wielding like Excalibur right and like sure. arthur was the only one who was worthy of you know kind of carrying the sword but there's always this exchange with the sacred item where it's kind of like you have to be proven worthy in order to be able to retrieve the sacred object or whatever and part of that process is not getting to the sacred object right it's like the the journey along the way and the decisions that you make are ultimately what determine your worthiness. It's not a, the arrival, but the whole journey before it. And I think for Matthias, this is kind of the proof that he's ready to accept this responsibility. He's ready to accept yeah. this sword. And, and the reason for that is because now he has people who really are like casting their lot with him and saying, we'll follow you in this case into almost literally the the depths of hell i mean this is symbolically right the, the the hardest part of the journey yeah right into the dragon's lair or the the, the lair of the adder in this instance um I, i'm glad that you bring up the the fact and i think you're spot on with his leadership is that this is really the first time that he is leading a group like the the shrews and leading them and um how important that is to the hero journey or that uh, arthurian legend uh, I I I think the first time I read this chapter, and the first time I read Redwall, I thought it was really slow, and um, it just felt like padding in a way. But now that I'm mm. revisiting again, I think that this is very craftily and tactically done, and I think Jake's did a great job of including the, these these interactions before we get to the the action of w within the lair. I think too the fact that Asmodeus comes in and he kills Mingo. And he paralyzes Gausum with his weird serpent gaze, which is right. kind of a soft ma magic. Yeah. I don't think that Brian Jakes ever intended to incorporate magic into this world. And yet there's kind of this magical power. So I think it, it at the very least kind of sets up for us that there is real genuine danger on the other side of this river. And that this is kind of the final threshold and there's no going back from this moment. The next chapter, we see Clooney enacting the next stage of his plan, which is to construct, construct and utilize a siege tower after dark. As he approaches the abbey walls, Cornflower spots him while on her food du duties to the defenders. 
she accidentally smashes a lantern on the tower, causing it to burst into flame. Many of Clooney's armies, uh, I'm sorry, many of Clooney's army die in the resulting blaze, and Cornflower is christened the heroine of the evening. Oh my gosh. This event with Cornflower and the blaze <laughs> of the siege tower is a war crime, right? Like it is this absolutely is... a war crime in the in the realm of Redwall. This is a war crime. <laughs> this chapter caught me by surprise because I I vaguely remember this happening, but I cannot believe how nonchalant they make her, you know, accidentally torching this this siege tower on fire. But then we get a glimpse of Clooney inside the tower and he's shell shook by this event, seeing all these rats trying to pile out of this siege tower as they're burning alive, running out of the tower on fire. And he's clamoring for his, you know, for his life to get out of there. And everyone is just kind of like, way to go, Cornflower, not realizing the absolute atrocity that has now happened in inside the tower it is absolutely mortifying this this is i feel like if that when this turns into an adaptation they need to have like the quintuple kill badge come up on the screen <laughs> for cornflower or something because this is it's she has she's killed the most people like there's no way that she hasn't killed the most people. i mean i i don't think that matthias kills yeah, like I don't think Matthias has the same body count as uh, as Cornflower does here. No, no. And it, and it's remarked upon even by I think it's Mortimer um, Abbott Mortimer who kind of is like, well, it's lucky that uh, it was just the siege tower that that lit up. And they right. talk about the use of fire in these fights and how neither side will commit to using fire as a means of uh, warfare because it's too dangerous to the entire countryside right so, it's it's like a mutual assured destruction for both sides it, using the fire um, right yeah this this chapter spooked me <laughs> i'm not gonna lie it <laughs> i read this and i texted you and i said dude we got to talk about cornflowers genocide <laughs> that she just committed, you know, like this is absolutely crazy. And, and how, yeah, this is, this chapter is nuts. I, I don't know what else to say about it, except <laughs> it's horrifying. It's mortifying. Oh, man. I definitely loved it. I, I think too, it was really funny for me because, you know, cornflower torches this entire like tower and she kills so many rats in the process and then everybody's like oh you're a hero and she's just like i guess i am and <laughs> but she still goes back to kitchen duty right she's just yeah. like what a wild night i had <laughs> yeah do you think that it's uh we're kind of speculating here do you think that jakes was um trying to make this kind of like a light and humorous moment or do you think that he was trying to poignantly parallel her reaction to being like oh that, that was kind of crazy to the absolute atrocities that Clooney saw within the, the tower I I think very genuinely that Brian Jakes just thinks that violence is funny and I think that 
I, I I mean this with every bit of my my soul, oh, no. and I I don't mean to cast any aspersion against uh, Brian Jakes and or or his memory, but I genuinely just think that he thinks that violence is hysterical, and certain kinds of violence is hysterical. So the fact that Cornflower, you know, just like accidentally commits this war crime, but also saves the Abbey in the process, is meant to be like a tee hee hee didn't that work out you know just like silent right. sam saying like tee hee hee let's drop some wasps on these dudes and then we see their corpses in the road and it's like well that worked really well um i think we are supposed to take it with a lot of humor but that's what is so tonally weird about all of these books yeah, yeah they're for children but i mean we're seeing rats being skewered or boiled alive <laughs> you know it's really oh. crazy the kinds of violence we see yeah you're totally right we're not even at the end of the war crimes we're gonna see some more happen but um yeah i think we should revisit this in our big review episode because i i, I it's a good point to bring up that maybe he just finds this funny and it might be that we're just getting to the age where this is not very funny <laughs> You know, like oh, Roadrunner and Wild E. Coyote and their kind of senseless violence is, is kind of funny. But then you get a little older and you're like, dang, they're really going at it with each other. And this, I don't this is a I don't really want my kids to replicate this. And so maybe that's just what's happening to us. Remind me when we do get to Moss Flower in book one, there is one particular death that I think is absolutely hysterically constructed and i i want to revisit oh. this idea of the comedy of violence so chapter six logalog and matthias split up inside the lair of asmodeus and they go searching for gaussum and the sword matthias discovers both with gaussum dead just outside the chamber of the sleeping asmodeus as the serpent sleeps, Matthias inches past the adder to discover the sword of Martin the warrior. With the sword in hand, Matthias sneaks out of the adder's sleeping chamber, only to find Logalog in a state of shock over this, the discovery of Gaussum's corpse. His frightened cries wake up Asmodeus. So in our... Uh book to the quest discussion when we were talking about sila and chicken hound and uh sila's death you mentioned that there were two deaths that really stood out and this was one of them so i'd love to hear your thoughts on your first reaction to gaussum what happens here um and uh, what yeah what your thoughts are on that yeah when i first read this book you have to understand that i think so much of the characterization of these characters is really not on the page. It's more our gut check feeling about what these characters represent idealistically. So one of the powers I think of archetypes is that it allows us to build deep, strong connections to a character very quickly because our ideas of who that character is, is informed by the ideas we take from other archetypes. So when I read about Gaussim the very first time when I was 12 years old, 
I felt a real connection to Gausam and the rest of the shrews. I really loved their weird kind of uh, quarrelous humor. And I felt like Gausam was a companion to Matthias in the same way that Basil's stag hair would be, or in the same way that Warbeak was, the same way that just the squirrel or silent Sam might be. And so I saw Gausam as kind of the stand in for that kind of warrior buddy character, just like in other parts of the book. And then when he finds her bloated corpse in Asmodeus's lair, I was absolutely horrified and devastated at 12 years old. This was one of the deaths that stuck with me indelibly and even when i think of gausam every time i see her on a page i immediately flash forward to this horrible horrible death where she's you know just followed matthias on his quest and then he he doesn't even see her die we don't see her die she just shows up bloated and dead in like the very bowels of this hellscape that asmodeus lives in I think this chapter, Jakes is introducing a lot of horror elements into this. And I think that the turnaround reveal of Gausam um, and uh, and her dismember, uh, this not dismembered, but her disfigured nature is using some of these kind of horror tactics. I mean, you're the horror expert. You know way better than I do. But this chapter read like a horror, um, had a lot of horror, horror elements in it. Um, specifically the sneaking around the the snake uh, Asmodeus in order to get the sword and the kind of tension that he's building up through that and um, Asmodeus opening his eyes um, or its eyes to to look at Matthias and then going back to sleep like these are all kind of horror elements that he's mixing in to make this um, but don't get me wrong it is it is chilling and I think as a young impressionable um a reader this would stick with you I, I didn't really have that experience because i read this when i was an adult but i can understand that this is definitely something that can be chilling especially and impressionable especially if you're younger um again you being the expert on horror what do you what do you think on that i i mean it's a very very effective chapter in terms of the tension that it builds for matthias because we get a a creeping sense of the foreboding and dread and, and it drips through this whole chapter, the description of the tunnels, the hissing of Asmodeus, you know, somewhere in the bowels of this. Yeah, I um, forgot to mention that. Yeah, that's a great place. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's really effective um, thrills. And so the, the tension, I think, is ratcheted up by Gaussum's death because, again, we know what the stakes are if Matthias messes up. And so that's one of the reasons why I also think this particular chapter break where it leaves us just hanging in suspense, wondering what's going to happen as Asmodeus wakes up. Um, it's super effective writing. I agree. I think it is very effective. We're not quite done with the war crimes yet. <laughs> we have more war <laughs> crimes that happen. Uh, yeah, speaking of some pretty terrible, terrible uh, violence, in Chapter 7, Kilconi's tunnel finally breaks ground behind the abbey walls. 
but Constance and the defenders have already come up with a plan by the time Dark Claw emerges from the hole. Using two giant cauldrons of boiling water, Constance drowns the tunnel rats and then forces a cave-in with the weight of the defenders. Clooney's invading horde dies horribly, all while Clooney himself suffers horrible nightmares about being chased by his dead commanders and a stalwart mouse champion with a gleaming sword. This chapter is nightmare fuel. <laughs> Literally. The drowning... The I don't know how Jakes does it so well of writing such terrible violence without actually being really graphic about the violence. But the boiling water killing kill coney and then in clooney's dream him being haunted by former commanders and kill coney showing up in that dream all muddied and wet and basically scalded is just bone chilling to me i i i think i uh, subconsciously blocked this whole chapter out of my mind through the first read and rereading it um i was just I'm, I'm chilled by this chapter along with uh, uh, with con- uh, with uh, cornflowers, <laughs> just war, war crime atrocities. Um, it's brutal. This is just a brutal chapter. And I think the the way that Jake's kind of uses this nightmare metaphor and Kilconi shows up in it is genuinely funny to me. Like I did laugh out loud when that happened. And I, it's. I don't know what else to say about it. For, for the record, I I think Kilconey actually survives this. Um, I don't think he was in the tunnel. Really? I know Dark Claw dies. Yeah, I'm oh, pretty that... sure Kilconey shows up in the the last or second to last chapter, um, where he's murdered by Matthias. Um, but I do know everybody else in this little squad is drowned, and then. Not just round, but they're buried in the earth because they cause a cave-in on the tunnel, which, uh, which you know, basically entombs them um, even as they've drowned. Yeah, uh, you're totally right. It's, I think it's Dark Claw is the one that shows up. In I believe it's Dark Claw. Claw yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good correction there. Um, it's it's still. I don't know. It's still bone chilling. Maybe I'm just too sensitive to the violence, but uh, what's happening here, but it's super messed up. Um, I, I've, I told you, I, I've been keeping a kill count of every single confirmed death and every eluded death in the entire book. And I've been doing a comparative reading of Moss flower as well. And the, we're, I think we're all going to laugh when we see these death numbers because it's absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for that. I, I can't wait. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here reflecting. I've talked about this chapter in the last chapter uh, with, uh, with Cornflower about how mortified I am with these chapters. But at the same time, I really do love them. Like, I, if, the, if these chapters are removed from the book, I, I definitely <laughs> wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do. So um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of like uh, in... Um, 
the first law books, Glockta has, uh, if you're familiar with those books, he has like these torture scenes that happen and they're always so gruesome and Oof. I hate them. But at the same time, he's like my favorite character in those books. And it's like, whenever I get to one of those, I kind of squirm, but then I, you know, I'm really excited to read it. So, uh, it's probably some complicated feelings just kind of going on with these, these chapters. I mean, I think I read the entire red wall series because I was addicted to the violence. I just, <laughs> I felt like there was nothing else in, that I had ever read that was just as serious and as bloodthirsty and as just so freaking cool as the violence in these books. I mean, I, I'll admit, if you put a scene in your fantasy movie where one dude is just absolutely impaled by a ballista, <laughs> I'm... I'm there. I'm there for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes the recommendation to read Redwall um, a little, a little better for adults. Like it, maybe, maybe that's a, a bad take, but um, I think it's really easy to write this off as being, you know, a kid's book and it, it has kids things in it. Um, but I think that these chapters kind of show that there's, there's some, there's some thing for adults too. Yeah. There, there's enough spice in here for sure. Well, Matthias and Logalog in chapter eight make a, a mad scramble to escape Asmodeus, but they become cornered deep in Asmodeus's lair. Matthias digs a hole through a wall wide enough for Logalog and Matthias to escape, but Asmodeus follows. The snake begins to hypnotize both the shrew and the mouse warrior, but a phantom Martin assists Matthias in breaking the spell and striking back at the adder. Matthias beheads it and saves both his and Logalog's life. What a cool moment. This this is really the kind of apex of this whole Asmodeus um, ad adventure. And I think that this is brilliantly done. I love the tension <laughs> that's built of them traveling through the tunnel and Asmodeus coming after them his uh his kind of call as he's getting closer to them him is striking the wall coming through and then um the the tension of the hip of matthias being hypnotized and the soft magic of martin kind of breaking that that trance it's this is such a cool chapter this is such a cool end to asmodeus as we see um I love the strike for red wall strike for cornflower strike for moss flower. Like I love that part of this yeah. too. Like, you know, he's, he's hacking away at, uh, at, uh, Asmodeus and, uh, he, his purpose as the hero during these things, uh, doing these things. It's really, really cool. I, this, this is definitely one of the most memorable things about this book. Um, and I remember this more than I remember what happens with Clooney. This, I think that this kind of feels like more of the climax of the book than what we actually see happen with Clooney. Yeah, this was actually the chapter that I used to use to introduce my friends to Redwall. Um, oh, would, cool. Yeah, I would I would tell them about the the moment where Matthias confronts Asmodeus and beheads him, um, and like it's such a cool chapter, it's such a cool moment for Matthias that uh, I absolutely got other kids to like pick up Redwall and read it and talk about it with me. 
um, my, my best friend, John Mark being one of them, uh, because I just absolutely loved this sequence so much. It, it occupied so much of my little 12 year old brain space. It's a really cool sequence, and I I could totally see that being an effective way to get get your friends in the red wall. Um, if I recall, I think you just used uh, with me. I think you just used the introduction of Colin the Vole, which is why I never read it. So uh, this would have been way more effective with me. <laughs> yeah. So matthias and logalog then return to the edge of moss flower where they meet once more with the other shrews matthias summons squire gingivir who is impressed with matthias's skill and courage but reminds him that the sword of martin is only a sword and that its power must be wielded responsibly matthias takes gingivir to make up with captain snow who also accepts a vow never to eat mice or shrews again. This is where we learn that the real journey was the friends that we made along the way, right? <laughs> uh, I think this is actually really touching that Squire Gingivere says this to Matthias. And I think it's a nice little cap to his hero journey where he's saying like, you know, it's not the sword that made you. You did a lot of this before you got the sword. It is just a sword. I do think that there's something magical about the sword though. And I'm excited mm -hmm. to explore more of that in, in Mossflower because I think that there's, it's kind of alluded to a little bit in that um but it's a really cool moment that happens here um now correct me if i'm wrong squire gingerbeer and uh, captain snow their quarrel was just the fact that captain snow ate mammals right wasn't it the quarrel yeah that that was the that was the fight okay um, that's what i thought because yeah because squire gingerbeer is he's not a vegetarian but he's like a pescatarian <laughs> yeah yeah and, i think you're right and he couldn't stand that Captain Snow had such disgusting eating habits. I I have a lot of thoughts about these two. And I, I absolutely don't think that Ryan Jakes ever intended to code them as queer characters. But they absolutely seem like an old gay couple to me. And I cannot erase that from my adult brain. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't want... Uh, I, I don't want to... Um like implied that but i think it is implied like i think jake's kind of implies it uh even when reading it the they went you know uh wing and paw together kind of into the sunset made me, <laughs> right, made right. me think that yeah um i i kind of wish we saw a little bit more of them um i think we really only get them in maybe three chapters like they don't they they don't really yeah. stick around for very long but they have a very we, minor role in the very end of the book but it's they're in other yeah. books uh are they in other books i is it gingerbeer in 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 mossflower that's a different gingerbeer oh that's, i'm gonna strike all like, this out of the episode it's like but... <laughs> that is can't be wrong on my own about. podcast what are you talking about We'll talk now about I gotta it keep it in. in now I gotta flower. keep it in. I, I keep yeah. It in. yeah. We'll talk about it in Moss Flower, but that I think that's actually Squire Gingivere's uh like his ancestor. Got it's like it. his, that his makes a little bit more sense. Something like that. Yeah, that makes a little more sense now I'm thinking about it with the timeline of of where Moss Flower is. Um Yeah. Yeah. 
but it is quite funny. I do like these two characters quite a bit. Um, I love the idea of like an old hunter who's like almost too blind to still be a hunter. Um, that trope for me just is always gold. Like I'm always going to be into that. In chapter 10, Clooney is at the limit of his wit and he finally enacts a plan to gain access to Redwall. He takes one of the dormice he captured earlier, a little dormouse named Plumpen, which is a hilarious name, uh, and instructs the dormouse to wait after nightfall inside the perimeter of the abbey. And then after the guards have fallen asleep, to open the north gate to Redwall and admit Clooney's army. Plumpin, afraid of losing his family if he does not obey, follows his instructions to the letter, only to be bludgeoned by Clooney's vermin the moment they cross into Redwall. Wow, Plumpkin just being used as a pawn um, by the clever Clooney. Uh, I think at the very beginning of this chapter... Um, or maybe it's the last Clooney chapter. Clooney's really kind of spaced out. Like he isn't sleeping well. He had that nightmare um, after the siege tower went up in flames. Um, everyone's talking about how he's in a bad mood. He's very removed um, for a glimpse of time. And then he quickly springs back into action in this chapter and starts this this blazing fire and essentially tells Plumpin, if you're not going to do this, I'm going to throw your whole family into this, this fire. Like he's fighting fire with fire now. Like he is going to commit the war crimes that Cornflower committed against his men in order to get <laughs> inside the Abbey. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what is going on with Clooney. Like why does he have this kind of lapse where he's removed and then is this is it part of him plotting for what's going on right now like what what's your interpretation for that i mean i think of clooney as being very clever and very wily but i also think that as part of his kind of villain's journey he he has to kind of come face to face with his mortality and, and be given a decision point, right? Just like the hero is given a decision point as to who he will become in the moment of crisis, I, I think the same has to be done for Clooney to make him a really convincing character and to sell us on his ultimate demise. So as the rest of all of this is kind of going on and Clooney is trying to wrap his head around what it is that he's going to do in his you know, kind of final stage of this battle, he has that dream sequence where he's confronted with all of the violence that he's wrought. He's given over kind of the receipts of his actions and asked once more to contemplate what this is really worth to him. And so when he kind of gets out of that, that dream state, he's too stubborn and he's too evil to turn away from the course of action that he's taken. And that's why this whole business with Plumpen is kind of his lowest point. He kind of demonstrates that he will absolutely do everything he can 
to get in here, no matter what the cost is. And that is his undoing, right? His unwillingness to just accept that maybe this isn't for him. Um, maybe he should, you know, kind of atone for anything that he's done. There will be an atonement for him, but it's not in the way that, uh, you know, he can survive. So I, I see this moment as kind of like, this is the lowest point of his villainy, right? To hold a hostage and say, I'm going to kill your whole family unless you do this thing for me. And then to discard that, that, you know, creature um, as just a, a tool, a, a, you know, once its use has passed, you know, I think this is really his lowest point as a villain. I think, I think you're, you're definitely right. And I, I can kind of see um, to your point, like, I, 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 I struggle with this because I wondered if it was Jake's trying to write in a small glimpse of redemption for Clooney, because is he contemplating what he needs to do to get into like, is he thinking, am I going to do, am I going to be that bad to basically, um, force, uh, threaten this gruesome death on this poor dude who's <laughs> living out in the moss flower woods? Am I going to force, force this ultimatum for him? And in order to get my goal, like, I, I wondered if that was Jake's trying to do a little bit of a redemption for Clooney, but I think ultimately you're right. You're right. He's willing to stoop down to that low of a level in order to get what he wants, which is to get into the Abbey that he, he just he, he he does that and he'll just he'll discard whoever he needs to in order to to get to his goal um no i'm i'm curious about you know kind of what you're thinking about him facing his mortality because i do think that that matters well he says he says in a later chapter he's like i know that the end of based off of my vision i know that that by the end of this day um i you know uh uh, I'll have what I what I need by the end of the day, and it's kind of alluding to the fact that he's going to die. But he thinks that it means that he's going to win the battle by the end of the day because of his nightmare, because of the vision that he sees. Yeah. So I wonder if he wakes up contemplating, well, I just need to do what I need to do um, in order to, you know, because I'm going to win, and I know that I'm going to win. And it's like, is it a final charge that he has, or um, is it just a sl a slight? kind of redemption for him like should i go forward with this and then he ultimately decides to um i don't know if there's like a really good answer to that uh, kind of the questions that i'm bringing up but that's kind of how i interpreted this this small interaction that we see with Clooney, where he's being kind of reclusive and um he's he's not taking that full charge until he does yeah i think he is given clear indication because i think the prophecy he's given uh, and I don't know that it's here. I think it's a little later, but he's given this prophecy that by the end of the day, his, his torment will be over, right? Like the, the nightmares that he has of, of Martin will end. He believes it's because he will get what he wants, but really it's because like, this is the end of the road for him. Um, and he's too arrogant to note the difference. Um, and I think, you know, once more, it, it's all about the choices that you make and the choices he makes as an evil character. He knows he's making the wrong choice, but he chooses to do so anyway because he believes that his power is greater than anything else that could threaten him.
Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's that's the better take is that um, it's his threat. He it's the threat that he has, and he um, that that's what kind of calls him into action is is the threat that he's facing. Yeah, for sure. I, I was gonna say I think this parallels what Jinjuvir was kind of warning Matthias against. You know, he kind of says, "Yeah, you've got this really cool sword, but you have to remember that." The sword is not what makes you heroic. The sword is not what gives you power. You already have power. And how you choose to wield that sword, how you choose to employ it according to your power is what will dictate what kind of a creature you become. And so I I think that whereas Matthias chooses it to defend the people that he loves and to build a community around him, Clooney only seeks to tear down what others have in a selfish ploy for himself. And that is, is kind of like the, the, the kind of power he employs is of course going to be directly related to his own demise. Uh, before we move on to chapter 11, let's go ahead and take a, a quick break and then we'll jump right back into the action. In chapter 11, the shrews have started to celebrate Matthias's victory over Asmodeus. And Matthias is told by Logalog that a sparrow has appeared and nobody can understand its message. Matthias goes to greet the bird and finds it is Warbeak with news from Redwall. Clooney has finally managed to break into the abbey. Logalog rallies his troops to march with Matthias on Redwall, and Warbeak, recently crowned Queen of the Sparrows, vows that her sparrow warriors will join the flight the fight with Clooney. Together they accompany Matthias on his way back to Redwall. This is such a cool moment to see a revisiting character come back and get ready for this this final showdown. Um, it's, I I love to see that Warbeak comes back around and we've seen some development from her as Matthias has done his warrior journey that she kind of comes to warn him and say, Hey, I've got this, uh, army that we can take charge. Um, you know, the Abbey's in trouble. Let's get to it. And it jumps just right into the action there. He's also leading the shrews back to the, the Abbey to, um, which, which in a way is kind of bringing the woodland creatures, the moss flower creatures back together to the Abbey. I think this is such a, a cool moment for Matthias. And um, I was ecstatic to see Warbeak. Yeah, I don't have very much to add to this particular chapter because it's just kind of touching base back again with the main plot, like the main mission. I think it's important to see moments of respite, right? And Matthias kind of, celebrates his achievement but then he's reminded of the fact that he went in the first place for this sword so that he defend his his abbey and his friends and while he's kind of celebrating he has kind of ignored the the greater mission right he's lost sight of the greater mission and i think that this is yeah you're you're absolutely right yeah, I think this is kind of a moment of hubris for him where 
he kind of has to again, once again, recognize the importance of his leadership and, and the duty that he has, you know, to the others. So he can't just celebrate his ego. He really has to center himself on the conflict to come. So once back inside Redwall in chapter 12, Clooney gloats over his recent victory. He starts renaming parts of the Abbey after himself and in his gloating states that a voice told him his nightmares would be over before sunset. His horde captures all the creatures in Redwall, including Constance, whom they overwhelm in her sleep. Clooney instructs his horde to create a mock courtyard outside where he will mete out his judgments against the defenders of Redwall. Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add to this chapter except that voice that speaks to Clooney. Um, I think that this is really where Clooney messes up because this voice is telling him that his nightmares would be over before sunset. And he takes this as a charge for his conquest, not realizing this is this is his imminent doom. This is an omen that he gets about his demise. And he he because of his his hubris, because of his um his uh craftiness, shiftiness, or whatever you want to say for it, um, that is what kind of leads him to his 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 demise. I think it's very clever that Jake's includes this um here as this kind of it, it's not really explained much more than that's what it is. It's a voice that tells him and he gloats about it, and that's kind of it. But we as the readers know that there's something more at play. We know that this final battle's coming up. We know that that's not what it means. We know that he's gonna be you know he's he's uh towards the end of his his days as as Clooney the the scourge uh, it's very clever yeah and speaking of final battles we transition into chapter 13 where Matthias Logalog and Warbeak march on Redwall Matthias setting a blazing pace Logalog tells Matthias that he should go on ahead and that the shrews will catch up with him in Redwall. Matthias briefly laments that he doesn't know how they'll get back over the walls, but Warbeak reminds Matthias that Clooney isn't concerned with keeping the Abbey since he thinks he already has it and does not know of Matthias's allies coming to the rescue. Meanwhile, Dunwing and her sparrows revive Plumpen and begin to grease the gates to Redwall in preparation of Matthias and the shrews and the sparrow army 1000 strong is ready to invade i love this chapter if only because i'm all about like summoning the the army right like summoning the the allies that are going to come and kind of help you uh end this quest and i especially love that plumpen is the one who kind of prepares the abbey to be retaken this tool that was discarded by Clooney is really another source of his undoing his arrogance in constantly dismissing the people around him is the thing that leads to his downfall 
Yeah, I I agree. I I think that that's uh, this is kind of the only contribution I have to this chapter. But I love that they essentially use the same tactic that Clooney used to use Plumpkin or Plumpin to grease the hinges to get the doors open and for them to get in. Um, he they do it right back to him, and I think it's very clever. Um, I, I agree. I like that they it's this final charge of all these. Uh, creatures coming together you know the sparrows are now working with the abbey the shrews are no longer uh, nomadic and on their own they're coming together it's just a really cool moment and really leading up to that big climax yeah and in chapter 14 which is really kind of the uh the last battle of the book uh, Clooney steps out into the abbey courtyard to begin deliberating over the fate of his captives. He demands that Mortimer kneel to Clooney's superiority, but the abbot does not, angering Clooney. Many of the defenders stand up against Clooney and are beaten for their transgressions until Matthias finally appears and issues a challenge to Clooney. Clooney cannot believe that the mouse from his dreams has come to torment him, and suddenly the final battle begins with sparrows, redwall defenders, and the shrews all joining in for a complete rout of Clooney's army. Clooney faces off in a pitched sword fight with Matthias, leading them into Redwall's bell tower. Matthias ascends the bell tower after stunning Clooney, but Clooney takes a hostage and demands that Matthias concede. Matthias convinces Clooney to let go of the hostage, then drops the Joseph bell on Clooney, crushing him to death. Outside, the battle is over and all of Clooney's horde have been killed. Abbot Mortimer, though, is dying from a poisoned wound inflicted upon him by Clooney when the fight began. He issues forth his last few orders to the abbey, which are that Brother Alf will succeed him as abbot, that Matthias is named warrior champion of Redwall, that the Martin sword is renamed Rat Death, that Cornflower is named as Matthias's wife, and that the old gatehouse where Methuselah lived is given to Matthias as his home, the sparrows and shrews are officially welcomed into Redwall as Redwall creatures. And lastly, Mortimer dies in Constance's arms. We've got a lot to unpack with this chapter. A lot of things happen here. So So much stuff in this chapter. Yeah, we're gonna have to take this uh, take this bit by bit. So to start off, um, I I get a little worried here when uh, Clooney is has all the uh, Redwall defenders in the courtyard and he's threatening to break Basil's legs. Um, Constance, mm. Constance, we already know is incapacitated. Um, he is he uh, also going to I guess beat up just squirrel like or he is already beating beating her up mm-hmm. um like he clearly is in command of everything that's going on and this is the first time where i'm really just like 
not feeling bad about all the rats that died in the siege battles. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, man, Clooney needs to get what he's getting for. You're messing with Basil. You're messing with Jess. This has got to be the end to end to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, before Matthias kind of swoops in and kicks off this final battle, we get a real sense of just how tyrannical Clooney would end up being to these creatures because it's not enough to just kill them and dispose of them. It's, it's like he wants to torture them. He needs this kind of sadistic power over them and he needs them to suffer. And I think that is just the most kind of brutalist, uh, you know, vision of, of what a ruler might do. Yeah, and when Matthias shows up and issues the challenge to Clooney and they have the very beginning of their fight, um, it, it, they, they both aren't ones to, um, they, they both get injured in this fight too. Clooney loses mm. the tip of his tail. Uh, Matthias yeah. gets stabbed in the paw. Like they're definitely toe to toe in this battle. And it, it is, um, they really are kind of equals to each other. Like they're very equally matched. Uh, but one thing that I, I love is that we see this. I keep saying that it's soft magic, but you could really say it's something like fate or destiny. And that is, um, Clooney doesn't identify Matthias as Matthias. He sees him as yeah. the warrior from his nightmares. And I, I think that's such a great detail. Um, I don't think it explicitly says that it's Martin, the warrior. It's that he's just the more warrior mouse from the, from the nightmares. And that's, that's yeah. really cool. I, I really like that a lot. And I think it, it leads into this epic battle that they have kind of, uh, clashing the, um, sword versus the, um, the uh, it's an iron pike right he takes it or it's a spike that he takes from yeah i think that's right yeah yeah Yeah. and they're kind of kind of fencing fighting all over the abbey grounds very cool moment i i love this i kind of said that the the fight with asmodeus seems like the climax and i will stay with that i mean i think that that's really Mm. you know a big part of the the climax of this book but we're finally getting to that final showdown between uh, matthias and Clooney. it's very exciting yeah, I had completely forgotten that Clooney is crushed by the bell. And and I've read this now three times and twice I've just completely forgotten that he's smashed by the Joseph bell and he's not actually killed by uh, Matthias, you know, like stabbing him. But that's not to say that Matthias does not stab some dudes because I think... doesn't he cut one of the rats in half i know i know he beheads one of them but i feel like he cuts somebody in half and i think it's kilconi yeah i think he stabs kilconi and then he says if anyone else moves i'll kill you too um and, and yeah you're right it's it's not like he's um completely I don't know, innocent in this battle. I know that's a bad way to say it, but uh, he definitely he definitely kills some rats in this for sure. I do think that it's really cool that the fight with with Clooney is actually a good fight. It's not just a kind of a pushover fight, and yet Matthias just mows down some dudes. Like in the <laughs> in the process, he just 
mm-hmm. like works his way through the remaining lieutenants that Clooney's got um, in pursuit of this duel. And then the, the duel is just kind of crazy. It, it is one of those old school swashbuckling duels that takes the characters up and down flights of steps across ramparts around walls. It's a really fantastic fight. Yeah. And it's not very explicit in the book, how long they fight for, but it's for a while. Like, it's not like they just like have this little tussle and then he gets them up to the bell tower and the, the, the bell falls on him. Like they fight for a long time. This is a a pretty long battle. Um, yeah, I, I love that they, that Jake's shows very early on too in their battle, like Clooney lashes out with his tail and Matthias parries with his shield and it effortlessly comes off the shield. It's like his whole quest has been building up to deal with Clooney. He's got the shield. He's got the sword. He's got his warrior spirit. Like it, you know, it's all kind of coming together for him to be the foil to Clooney. And I, it's very well done. I really do like it. Um, I will say, well, actually you should, you should take first, um, about Abbott Mortimer. Cause I know that you have some, some specific thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, in, in the three reads I've done of this book, I don't remember Abbott Mortimer hurting as much as in this third read, um, Abbott Mortimer's final moments, like really, were very emotional for me and I maybe it's because we're doing this podcast and so it it, it feels like there's a little bit more magic involved in the process of reading these books but Mortimer's death is so beautiful and emotional and uh upsetting that I actually found myself crying through the end of this chapter um there's the moment when mortimer is being held by constance and his last words to her are you know kind of commenting about the beauty of redwall and and you know kind of the beauty that they fought for and that just hit me really really hard on this read yeah, I love that in Mortimer's final moments, he says to Matthias um, that he can't be uh, he can't be a brother of the Abbey because his destiny or not really his destiny, but um, he's far too brave. I think he says your heart is far too brave for you to be a brother that you have to be the warrior mouse of Redwall. And I, I think that 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 one kind of you know, tugged on the heartstrings a little bit. Cause I just think that's a really cool moment where he's saying like, you know, you're kind of bigger than this. Like what we originally started out to do in the Abbey, um, you're, you're going to be doing a lot more than that. Like the shrews are now reunited into the Abbey. They have a home. The sparrows are no longer at war with the, the mice. They have a home. It's a really cool completion of Mortimer's journey as the leader or, um, his vision for Redwall as the leader. Um, and I think that that's why it is so impactful for me, like reading it. Um, I think that that's why his death has so much more weight than some of these other characters. Um, I think Matthias interacts with Methuselah more than he does Mortimer, honestly, like mm. um, <laughs> they, they have some questioning together that they go on and stuff. Um, so I think it's cool that Jake's does kind of tie the very f- uh, final bits of this book with this this death that we see. 
um, it is very touching and it is very emotional. Um, it's a great way to wrap up the book. I, I think it's, uh, just incredible how, um, all, th- all this kind of comes together for this, this, uh, uh, final chapter, a few paragraphs. Yeah, I, man, I just have so many, so many complicated thoughts about, you know, ending this book. Um, I love that at the end of the book, Redwall is unified again. And it's not just Redwall. It's like all of Mossflower comes out the other Mm -hmm. side of this conflict. And that we see that although there's a lot of tragedy at the heart of this, what Matthias managed to do was really bring together three disparate societies within Mossflower and unite them not just by a cause but but kind of like by a an understanding of their ideals together and so that unification of mossflower is really interesting to me i i still think a lot about the violence of this book and i think about some of the concepts that it plays with with regards to power and and how it relates to um the the utility of power and and a lot of that mirrors i think some other ancient literatures probably subconsciously i don't think jake's intended to make it parallel some classical literatures but the idea of unity in spite of violence or that a, a kind of shared understanding of the mission you know can kind of bring people together is really interesting to me and i think that that's made very clear by the the kind of gathering of these forces and then mortimer you know kind of fully sanctioning their that unity um giving it a name you know giving it a space uh, as he's dying i i think this is really symbolically important to the ideas the book is playing with and I just absolutely love this moment. Yeah, it's a great moment. I'll also mention that um, it's really cool that Martin Sword gets a name. Uh, that's another fantasy trope that <laughs> oh. happens a lot is like a named weapon. Um, yeah. I do think it's kind of ironic that they name it Rat Death. Um, you know, <laughs> Snake Death doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. <laughs> right, um, right. But yeah, it's it's really clever that he gets this named weapon. Um, rat death and it, it's a detail that i missed the first time reading it i, I didn't ca- i mean it happens right at the end so it's easy to easy to miss um but it's it's a cool moment i like that this kind of christening of him being the warrior comes with this named weapon our last chapter in the book is chapter 15 where we get a kind of where are they now summary we find that John Church Mouse has taken over as Abbey Recorder for Methuselah and tells us what happens in the year that has passed since Clooney's uh, death. Silent Sam is now talking, and he's been talking to Matthias and Cornflower's son, Matameo, which is short for Matthias Methuselah Mortimer. Matameo seems next in line to take up the sword rat death. Brother Alf, whose full name is Mordalfus, prepares a feast to celebrate his first anniversary 
as Abbot Mordalphus. The shrews have learned to speak with bees. Warbeak names herself deputy to Friar Hugo, which I think is funny because Friar Hugo has all of the candied chestnuts. And the sparrows have joined Redwall's citizenry. Basil Staghair has joined Squire Gingivere and Captain Snow in revisiting Redwall. And Matthias fishes for a bigger grayling than last year. The split Joseph Bell has been recast as two smaller bells, Matthias and Methuselah, and Tim and Tess have become the Abbey Bellringers. People are happy, and life continues ever on at Redwall. This is such a cool chapter. I love that this chapter <laughs> is kind of written as a letter from Friar Hugo. It's very clever how that's done. Um, and the follow-up, I this I feel like this chapter tugged at my heartstrings more than um, the last chapter, simply because it's like you're seeing all these characters move on and kind of develop, and it's like your kids growing up, kind of feeling like Sam is talking, Matameo is is you know kicking around. Um, there's also some really good tidbits in there about um, Spike uh, brewing some. Uh, October nut brown ale. Like there's just these great details that are included in this chapter. Um, it put a big old smile on my face. And uh, I was a little sad to see the final end page. I'm going to be honest, man. This has been <laughs> such a journey. We're not done yet. We still have our review episode. But this got to me a little bit. I closed the book and I was like, ah, man. And then I picked up Moss Flower and just jumped right back into it. So uh, it, didn't, it didn't hang around for too long. But this this last chapter uh, really is a, a, an end of a journey. And uh, it, it got me a little bit. Yeah, I, I'll save a lot of my more complex thoughts for the big review episode where I think we're going to yes. have some great conversation. But I mean, you're totally right. Um, I, I closed the door or, or closed the book with with real tears in my eyes. Um, and again, it's only been a couple years since I last read this one. Um, whereas the other books I haven't read in probably 20 years or more. And I, I don't know what it is about this particular book or about this journey that feels so different this time. Um, except that I... I absolutely love it. I love this book. I love this final chapter. I love everything that the book kind of puts forward for us. And yeah, it definitely had me excited about Moss Flower. I mean, what what a what a great way to end a book and just be f feeling like animated that yeah, this is going to be worth it. 22 more books or 21 more books. <laughs> yeah, it really sets the stage for what's coming up next. And although I agree, it 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 feels like the end of the story. We know that there, there's way more stories to be told. Um, I do really enjoy this this story a lot. I'm going to save my thoughts for the um, our review episode as well. So in that episode, we're going to give you our final thoughts on like a star rating for this. We're also going to talk about our biggest likes and dislikes. 
Um, I'm personally so excited to see that final death count. We're going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> there's there's going to be an action-packed episode. We're going to be covering a lot of things. So it's not the end of the story yet. We've got that review episode. Um, but man, it's been a journey. We went through the wall, the quest, and the warrior, and, and here we are. Uh, who would have thought? Here we are. <laughs> we made uh, it, yeah. Now, before we... <laughs> we made it, yeah. Who, who would have thought? Uh, this... Uh, most memorable side characters is a little lackluster <laughs> this time, isn't it? <laughs> we really don't get very many new characters in book three. The only two new side characters that we get are really uh, Plumpen, or I guess there are three. There's Plumpen, there's uh, Captain Snow, and there's Squire Julian Gingerbeer. Yeah, that's all we got. We don't really even get any more memorable vermin. Um, I I don't think as any more are introduced be, besides maybe Dark Claw, but um, he's only I believe mentioned Dark very Claw briefly. was mentioned earlier. Yeah, we we really don't get any new villains or or new vermin. Yeah, to your point, I think that the only you know, new characters are those three. So, of the three, who do you think is is your most memorable? Uh, I like Plumpin. I'm going to have to put him at the top of my list um, <laughs> simply because I think he's really crucial. <laughs> I think he's really crucial to uh, Clooney getting in into his castle and also um, his uh, swift defeat. I think for you? me, it's probably it's probably Squire Julian Gingivere. Um I go back and forth. Yeah about you know who is actually like even worth remembering of this crew because their roles are so very small but i love gingivere's talk with matthias about the sword and really about like its importance as a symbol um but an understanding that it it's just a, it's just an object right it doesn't really mean anything except what you put it to use and so he reminds Matthias, like, this thing's only for killing. And so you really need to mm -hmm. think about, is that really the mantle you want to take up? Because if you only ever look to the sword to solve your problems, you're really just going to kill a lot of people. And I, I just, I really like the kind of heroic, like, ego check there. Um, and I think that's why he stands out to me. Yeah, I love that. That's a great that's a great take. All right. Well, that's going to do it for episode three, The Warrior. Uh, again, this has been a very long journey for us to, to go through uh, this book and, and to talk about it. Uh, thank you so much, Trevor, for, for joining in this. We have a lot more books to go, so this is definitely just the beginning. But it, We've got so many more books, man. <laughs> yeah, but thanks so much for, for doing this. It's been great to talk about one of your childhood favorites and uh, a growing series that I love. Um, so you can find us on Instagram and threads at Books in Badgers. That's an N between Books and Badgers. Uh, you can also email us questions. We'd love to join, have you join in on the discussion uh, at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. Um, send, us, send us questions. We, we would love to hear what your thoughts are on the memorable characters um, in this 
Redwall, this first book, Redwall. Uh, we'd love to hear your hot takes. Uh, we'd love to also hear your corrections. <laughs> we probably got some things wrong. I know I've got some things wrong. Uh, so we would, we would love to hear from you if you want to email us there. Uh, if you love Trevor's voice, you can find him on Slayhouse Presents. Uh, you've got some really cool interviews coming up, and uh, it's kind of the the um, uh, hot season for new releases coming around in, in the spooky season. So uh, you've got some cool stuff coming up. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy just how much stuff uh, is on the horizon. Uh, just recently dropped an episode with Scott Leeds of Schrader's Cord. I've got an episode scheduled pretty soon with Laura Senf, author of The Clackety that I mentioned. Uh, Frostbite from in- Angela Sylvain. Daughters of Flock Island from Krista Carmen. Nestlings by Nat Cassidy. So if you're looking for some spooky season suggestions, I highly suggest you come on over to Slayhouse Presents. I've, I've got all kinds of stuff in my sleeve for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Be sure to check that out. Um, if you want to support our show, the best thing you can do is please leave us a review. Uh, that helps us to get into the algorithm for other people to see visibility of the show. Um, so yeah, if you want to support us, that's that's the best way to do it. Or tell your friends. And uh, if your friends are like, well, what's Redwall? You can do what Trevor does and just break out that chapter with the fight with <laughs> Asmodeus and you'll, you'll hook them in. You can definitely get them that way. Um, again, thank you guys so much for listening and being part of this journey. Uh, please join us in our review episode. I'm extremely excited about that. We're going to have our good friends, Tiff and Avery for that episode. And we are going to dive into the nitty, the gritty, the thoughts of Redwall. So please join us in that episode. Uh, well, thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time.